So um, I've actually just come in from Spirit Rock where I was teaching a retreat. I am teaching a retreat. We're in the middle of a retreat with Philip Moffat and Adrian Ross and other friends. Um, and it's a full retreat. And actually, there's, there's 10 or 15 people from our sitting group up there sitting now. And they're having their Dharma talk right now. So it's it's kind of nice. We're, we're doing the same thing. Um, and this is a concentration retreat. And the, the maybe the difference between the usual Vipassana retreat that we have and this retreat is for the whole retreat people are focused on mindfulness of breathing. That we're using mindfulness of breathing as the through line um, for gathering ourselves, for composing ourselves, for learning how to concentrate and then for that concentration to begin to deepen to become uh, more and more full um, a very full concentration, a very rich concentration. Um, and so I thought I would say a little bit about that and then a few, you know, sometimes I make up talks with you. If you haven't been to this group, sometimes I'll ask for ten, eight themes and make up a talk. And I'm, I'm trying to do that a little differently tonight. Like I made, I made up, I gave myself the themes and now I'm going to make up the talk. <laughs> And I may need a couple more as we go. We'll see. So, so you could think about if there's more themes you would like. But I'm going to start with this retreat and talking a little about concentration um, and mindfulness of breathing and why uh, it might be helpful to learn how to concentrate and what it means to concentrate in a contemplative way which may be different than we've usually thought about it or we've been taught or we've been trained. Um, I don't know about you, but um, many people... Well, let me ask, how many people associate, associate being concentrated with being tense or tight in some way? Okay, medium amount. Because it seems for many people the the... Um, encouragement to concentrate is often done with a, you better concentrate or you're not going to graduate. <laughs> or, you know, you better concentrate or you'll never become something. Or you'll never get anywhere. Or you'll never finish that, you know, whatever the project is if you don't concentrate. And, um, and so for many people, there's a certain idea of both um, tension and a, a kind of focusing. That to concentrate means to focus. And the focus often means narrowing, a narrowing down. And it's, um, it's a little different in mindfulness practice. To concentrate, first of all, means to relax. That's primary in concentration. It means um, to learn how to make a certain kind of effort because it takes some effort to concentrate but the effort is not a tight or tense or harsh or um, contracted effort. It's an effort that has a, a, a sense of balance um, characterized by wholeheartedness and ease. Um, and so the concentration that we've, we've been working with this week has been on what's called anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath 
or technically mindfulness of the in-breath and out-breath. And, um, and there's different ways to do it. People focus on different areas. Some people like to focus on their belly, some people on their chest, some people at the nostrils, and then some people focus on the whole body breathing. And what's, what I like about whole body breathing, personally, and I've done, um, I guess I've done all those other styles to some extent. You know, many years focused on the nostrils, many years focused on the belly, then more on the torso. And then the last few years I've been practicing this kind of whole body breathing. where And you can just try it right now for a second. You just feel your body sitting here. And it's really the instruction I gave to begin with. And then you feel your body breathing. And let the two merge. Let the two mingle. And what it provides is a very big sense of what to pay attention to. It's not quite as small as, let's say, right at the nostrils. It, you, it, we're able to use a very um, large object to begin to gather our attention and our awareness and to center in this way. Remember, uh, concentrate, concentra. It, it's about centering ourselves, concentration. It's not simply focusing, although the, that's a quality of concentration. Centering is a really good way to think about the concentration we want in mindfulness practice. Grounding Composing is really a beautiful word that we learn how to compose ourselves, collect ourselves, and not be um, so distracted or dispersed, maybe even a better way to say it. And so there's a way to become concentrated that is uh, not in contention with everything else. It's not just simply an excluding in every, everything else or denying other things but learning how to let, um, let the breath and the body um, become the center of what we're aware of and let that center keep expanding. And in that way, concentration, uh, mindfulness of the breath means letting the breath fill our awareness. Fill your awareness. And it, it's, um, it's a beautiful practice um, because it's a skill, that it's a skill we can learn. Mindfulness itself is a skill and concentration is part of that skill. And the reason why I say it's, um, uh, the reason why I like that is because there are certain, um, certain ways to develop the skill, certain tools that develop the skill. Um, certain qualities that develop the skill that we can actually learn and master. And because often people get the idea that mindfulness is kind of haphazard, whatever comes we're aware of. And that's one capacity of being mindful. But another capacity, and this is more the concentration side of mindfulness, is the capacity to begin to create a sense of well-being to find a sense of well-being, that's a better way to say it, to find a sense of well-being, simply being present, simply being here, simply being awake to this experience. 
that there's an inherent well-being that we can begin to tap into or touch into and we can develop the skill to find that and then that well-being that sense of wholeness which is one of the ways concentration is sometimes translated is is wholeness or unification of mind and body the unification of experience will make it a little broader because really it's heart and mind and body that that are uni- that we become less dispersed and we become more unified and there's a sense of wholeness and inherent in the sense of wholeness is a sense of well-being and it's part of what we seek in coming to meditate and there is a certain amount of that that is simply skill that is simply learning the various techniques to discover our inherent wholeness our inherent well-being and like any skill there is a whole series of qualities that are developed so one of the first qualities one needs to develop a skill and master it is patience is simply being patient in the process or having the vision of what it is to having the vision and understanding of how to master skill and then appreciating each step of the way so many of you are will have some sense of some skill that you've mastered maybe it's music or art or maybe it's um gardening or maybe carpentry or maybe it's computers or whatever it might be where you have some sense of you've learned how to do something the same quality and the same principles will apply in mastering the skill of concentration of composure of a sense of um of gathering and um centering ourselves and then like any skill we learn how to repeat things so patience is a quality a certain kind of um um diligence not quite the right word steadfastness in repeating the the pieces we need to learn if we're learning how to play the piano we need to repeat the scales or if we're growing a garden we need to water the plant every day that there's a certain um devotion to the task that's very very helpful and very important and if you devote yourself to the task of meditation as a skill it will begin to bear fruit like playing the piano or watering the garden um if you're learning how to if you and we don't do this so much these days but if in the old days which I don't know how old those were. See, I don't know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, like knife sharpening was a skill that a lot of people knew. In the house somebody sharpened the knives with a stone, very common. And and that was a skill that one had to learn. It was a craft. And you you know, because if you were too hard it didn't work, you could chip the knife and if you didn't put enough pressure, it wouldn't really sharpen the blade. And if you were impatient, it wouldn't work because it took some time. And if you weren't relaxed and you were tense, then it was very uncomfortable. So one has one of the 
qualities we learn as we learn the task is how to relax in the process so that it works for us. And of course, with any art or skill like I'm describing, um, there's a tremendous amount of creativity involved. The creativity being um, experimenting and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And, and it's actually a lot of fun if you've ever made a dance or painted a picture or built something. You know, sometimes you make mistakes, but um, that's how you learn. And the mistakes aren't always so bad as the great um, African-American pianist and composer Thelonious Monk once said. He said, um, he said, there are mistakes and then there are, there are things that don't sound so good. You know, because he, he knew how to use the mistake. He knew how to learn from the mistake. And, and you know, when, actually when Thelonious Monk was first playing, people thought he didn't know how to play the piano. And, and it was a really interesting thing because he had such a unique way of hearing the music, people thought he was making mistakes. But he had learned something. He had learned a different way to hear and that created a very unique and, and brilliant uh, uh, music that then later people could hear. Lay after a while, it took them a while to hear. He got it first. And actually that's true often of innovators. The people think they're, they're making mistakes. Except then later the mistakes are what's really beautiful about their, their innovation. And it's true in, in um, this process of learning how to collect and gather is that there's a, a process of learning. Um, so here, let me, let me back up one step. The instruction, like on this retreat, the basic fundamental instruction is stay with the breathing and let go of everything else. Okay, Stay with the breathing, let go of everything else. And um, in a little bit, this was my the first time I ever did a, a long concentration retreat. It took me about, I don't know, five days or a week or so. And all of a sudden, I got it. Oh, how you practice, you just stay with the breathing and let go of everything else. You let go of the thoughts, let go of feelings, let go of other experiences, let go of interpretation, let go of belief let go of wanting something to happen, let go of not wanting something to happen, and just stay with the breathing. And it doesn't mean all that other stuff goes away. It means then we learn this, the art or skill of how to stay with the breathing as that stuff comes and goes. Because of course it comes and comes. Thoughts come, feelings come, ideas come, beliefs come. You know, preferences come, interpretations come. And it's like you just keep letting them go, letting them go, letting them go. And there's a way, and this is where the heartfelt part of um, being mindful of the breath when we're learning concentration comes in, is that we learn to devote ourselves to the breath, devote ourselves to this, um, to our life's breath. And you know that. Um, the word breath 
if you trace it back, um, it, it means spirit. And spire in Latin, spear, I'm not sure of the actual pronunciation, means breath. And so you devote yourself to the inspiration of the breath, the inspiring of the breath, and of course the expiration, which is the letting go of the breath. And you can play with it even as I'm talking, feeling your body, feeling the breath. It's actually the instruction we give on the retreat to people listening to the talk tonight that's uh, being given. Is we'll, we'll always start the talk by saying it's more important to pay attention to your breath than the words. The words will come in anyways. The, the ideas will come in. What's, what, what's valuable will come. But your, your actual experience is more important. The actual, your actual life's breath is more important. And then, as, as, that, as the, there comes a momentum in concentration, it's true in mindfulness too, there comes a momentum in meditation. And what happens is, I don't know what happens actually, something, something that's a little magical. It's like, um, you know, like a little bit, where especially at first, somebody says, you know, just stay with the breath, stay with the breath. You're doing it on faith. You, you, some belief that the person knows what they're talking about and they, you trust them enough or that the Buddha said it, so okay, I'm going to do it. Or for whatever reason, you, you, you trust the idea enough that you're going to do it. But at some point, you start having the experience of what it means to be concentrated and it's it's interesting I mean you know the images that come when I think about what's analogous in our life uh, well this is good I can use basketball um, you know because I think it's one reason why people love sports and love watching sports is because they see people at a high level of concentration being very having a, a high level of energy a high level of wholeheartedness and devoting themselves to their task and um, and being fully there and concentrated while they're doing whatever they're doing they're not distracted they're not thinking about yesterday or tomorrow or you know, the, the Warriors, when they won the game two days ago, they weren't thinking about the two losses. They, they dropped that. They had to get present if they were going to win. And you see it in any great athlete. I mean, you, just any, any really high-level athlete, whether they're swimmers or golfers, um, that level of, they're really there with that experience fully. Now, what's different because there is something different about meditation is you're not doing anything. You're not doing you're not concentrating on basketball or on swimming or on tennis or on whatever else. What what's happening is the mind itself is getting concentrated just in and of itself. And it's using this very simple, ordinary, 
and somewhat magical phenomena of our life's breath to begin to concentrate. And let's see if I can remember this. So it's the unification of mind, the unification of body and mind, or heart and mind, body, heart, mind. And in the text, there's a way that the Buddha will talk about the mind at a certain point that it's luminous and that it's um, purified and that it's malleable. And what he's describing are qualities of a concentrated mind. That our minds have a capacity that we may not be aware of to it's like settling into itself in a certain way, composing into its own self by using this one simple uh, phenomena of our breath that it starts to become um, um, full in a certain way, very full, very centered, uh, very rich. It has its own texture to it, the mind even. I, I hope this is not too obscure. I mean, maybe I should be giving this talk at the retreat. I'm not sure. But um, it, it also has certain qualities start to happen, certain um, experiences happen as the mind gets quiet. So one of the experiences is that thoughts can actually start to stop. Or even if they don't stop, they lose their potency. They lose their charge to some extent. And, and then as they lose their charge, something else is, is, is in charge, is, um, is energized. The mind itself is energized. It feels very bright. The mind can feel very bright, very clear. Um, it's part of the luminosity of mind. It can also feel and will feel very, very pleasant. Very pleasant. There are certain states that come. And, and they're called states of rapture or states of joy or bliss. And they're very natural to deep states of concentration. And they're fun. They're fun. I want to make a plug for those states. <laughs> And, you know, they're a little bit the carrot. And, and they're a good carrot. They're an appropriate carrot because they, they draw us in. When you start to taste... Here's... I know what I want to say. When you start to get a taste of concentration, one of the great benefits it has is it, it, it actually arouses a tremendous faith in the Dharma, in the teachings, and in the practice itself. You start to see, oh... This goes somewhere beyond what we knew, beyond what I know, and it's good. And it's, you recognize the goodness. It's just inherent in that sense of wholeness that's developing and growing. And then, and it, so it'll move from this kind of rapture or fullness, and, and then it gets more refined, it'll, and, and the refinement is more of a happiness and a joy. And then it gets even more refined the, the happiness falls away a little bit and there's just a kind of equanimity. And the equanimity is really uh, peace. It's stillness. And it's uh, sometimes a little disturbing for people at first. 
Um, and this is when thoughts really lose their charge. They lose their Vedana. How many people here don't know the word Vedana? Let me just see. Okay. So Vedana means, Vedana is, um, is the feeling tone. In Buddhism, Vedana is the feeling tone of experience. And it's said that each experience has a feeling tone. That if I ring this bell, for some of you, the feeling tone of that bell will be pleasant. Now for some of you, if I keep ringing this bell, the feeling tone may be unpleasant. And for some of you, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Those are the three basic feeling tones that it's said are in every moment of experience. And you can be more or less conscious of the feeling tone of an experience. When you stub your toe, you're really aware that the feeling tone is unpleasant. You know, or if you're eating a nice piece of dark chocolate, you can be aware that the feeling tone is pleasant. Mostly people are aware of those two and they're not so aware of the neutral feeling tone of things. We actually don't pay so much attention when things are neutral. Um, one of the things that can happen is the mind re really starts to settle. Or, and of course, you know, I could use the word um, um, heart and, and mind synonymously. Chitta is in the Pali, the original language means heart or mind. So we could say the heart begins to settle or the mind begins to settle. As the consciousness begins to settle into itself in a deep way, uh, the equanimity what will come is this, um, that everything, the, the Vedna starts to go away. And by that I mean, I'll give you an example. I was on this retreat and I was doing concentration practice, this kind of breathing, and then and I'd been having a lot of anger about something, a lot of anger, very strong at times, very strong. And, you know, I know how to work with it and allow it and sit with it and breathe with it and open to it and let it rip and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and um, But nothing worked to for it to stop. It was it kept coming periodically. I'd get very calm, I'd go into deep states concentration, and then at a certain point this anger would come. And um actually I did something I don't often teach, but I'll tell you, because um, I, I was working with the teacher and I was you know, I told him, you know, I'm angry, I'm this and that and at some point he said, Well, uh why don't you stop those thoughts? And I'm like I don't. I was on the phone. I was working by phone with my teacher, and I said, "I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't repress things. It's not the way I practice." I said, "I'll I'll do a keto, but I don't do repression." He said, "Okay, well then do a keto." You know, he didn't. He wasn't too attached to his instruction, but he planted a seed in my mind, right? Like, oh, stop the thoughts. So after, you know, a half a day or so, I thought, oh, I wonder if I could stop the thoughts, <laughs> right? And my mind, now remember, the concentration makes the mind bright, purified, malleable. And this is an interesting part of concentration and of, of, the, of our mind's capacity itself is that 
is that we can incline the mind at a certain level of concentration, of, of presence-centeredness, of presence. We can incline the mind in a direction and things happen. And so I thought, okay, let me see if I can stop the thoughts. And I could. Now this is, this is probably two and a half or three weeks into retreat. And I could stop these thoughts that were stimulating the anger. And then what happened was the equanimity really came. And then from there it was very interesting and very noticeable that I could have any thought and there was no charge to the thought. I could have the same thoughts that were making me angry day, two days ago before about the same person and what happened. And it just, it wasn't like I had to do anything now. That had lost its Vedana. Not only that, I could think the best thoughts and there was no Vedana. There was no pleasure in the thought. You know, because thoughts are actually can be very, very pleasurable. Everybody know that? <laughs> right? And so, at, at that point, and what it, really what I would just want to highlight is this level of equanimity is not our, the usual way we go around in the world, not the usual way I go around in the world, but it's possible for us to begin to glimpse um, um, what the capacity of our mind and heart might be. And to begin to then look at the Buddhist teachings from that perspective of what's actually possible for us as human beings, which is really the great gift of the Buddha. It's the great gift of the people who've practiced for the last 2,600 years and realized the teachings of the Buddha. We got a little confirmation there, huh? <laughs> so, so, I think that's all I wanted to say about the retreat. I just wanted to give a little plug for concentration and for, um, because it's inspiring to teach a retreat like this. And really, even in three days, watch what happens for people. And it's not, not that everybody's at the level I'm describing, but everybody's already, especially, I don't know why this is, but on the concentration retreat, it seems to go vroom, very quickly. And we feel it, and teachers feel it as we sit in a room. Different rooms feel different, like tonight felt different than sitting this morning at the retreat. And it's, of course, they've been sitting for three and a half days now, or something like that. And, it, and it's beautiful to see the um, uh, openness of people, the joy that comes, because there's a lot of joy happening for people, because as we start to feel whole, it's just natural. It's part of our nature. It's natural to us to be happy, actually. <laughs> it's kind of, we don't usually believe that, but it's true. You don't have to believe me, but... We a lot don't, haven't learned the skills to realize our innate joy, goodness, pleasure, happiness. And there's a very famous um, teaching that the Buddha, that really changed the Buddha's life, the Buddha's awakening, and then really shaped how the teachings come down to us in this way. So most of you know the Buddha, when he left his totally hedonistic worldly life as a prince, kind of had a big 
big swing, right? He went from being a hedonist, living a great life, high class, high caste, rich, you know, kind of as good as it gets for his time and place. And then cut off his hair, got rid of his robes, his jewels, left everything behind and became an ascetic and became a very severe ascetic that said he was living on one grain of rice a day uh, at a certain point and that he could touch his skin and he'd touch his backbone and that and all kinds of things. There's all these images in the text of at a certain point the gods would look down and they couldn't tell if he was dead or alive. That's how severe his ascetic practice was. And somewhere at this point, at this very um, uh, extreme point of ascetic practice, he has a memory. And he remembers being um, under, in his father's garden, under a rose apple tree. And he was in the rose apple tree when he was a boy, and he had gone into a state of samadhi, of concentration, of absorption. And he remembers this, and he remembers the pleasure of it, and the joy of it, and the satisfaction of it. And he thinks, and this is how it reads in the text, he thinks, oh, could this be the way to enlightenment? And then his next thought is, oh, yes, this is the way to enlightenment. Duh. (laughs) Thank thank goodness, right? Because otherwise we'd all be sitting here like on one grain of rice and (laughs) emaciated and... And he really realizes, oh, he's gone the wrong way. He sees, he sees that there's a way to go that, um, and it's really symbolized by this rose apple tree. And you know, to be honest, I don't even know what a rose apple tree looks like. But the, just the idea of a rose apple tree, you know, it's like there's something alive there, there's something beautiful there, there's something delicate there, there's something fresh. You know, you can almost smell the apple, rose apple. And and he and he and so and he realizes he says he says something I don't quite have it in my mind exactly right, but um do I need to be afraid of this um pleasure? That's what he says. Do I need to be afraid of this pleasure? And he realizes, no, I don't need to be afraid of this pleasure. This pleasure is the way to awakening. And then he, and he, the last bit is he realizes that he can't realize that pleasure with a body that's so emaciated. So then he's, he, he realizes it's good to care for the body and that he'll take, um, he'll take some, uh, uh, rice porridge, like rice pudding and milk pudding. And, and then he takes some food for the first time in a long time and he starts to care for the body. And this is, Pivotal because it, it's really the movement to the middle way between hedonism and asceticism, but it also changes the whole shape of how the practice uh, comes to us because it comes to us um, learning both to care for ourselves and then develop that sense of wholeness and, and well-being, to learn how to get in touch with that sense of wholeness and well-being as the basis then for enlightenment. It's not yet enlightenment, right? He goes from there, he takes the food, he, he realizes that going, using this concentration, um, developing it and learning how to um, care for oneself through the concentration itself then becomes the basis for him going and sitting under the Bodhi tree and waking up.
So, um, so it's a little encouragement for concentration practice. The other thing I wanted to talk about, which is, um, let's see, which way to go? I guess I'm, well, they're kind of mixed together because it's Mother's Day today. Yes? Everybody know that? Um, and so I was thinking about mothers, you know, and Mother's Day. And also, if, I don't know how many people were here for Kitty Sarah and Tanisara when they were here. But our friends, yeah, our friends, Kitty Sarah and Tanisara were here. And Kitty Sarah's mother had just died recently. And so mostly he gave the, the Dharma talk about his mother. And um, and I was appreciating that, enjoyed his talk, and um, and I was making some Mother's Day calls. You know, I called the the mother of my daughter, and to wish her a happy Mother's Day. And we had a lovely talk, and talked about remembering the night my daughter was born, the night she became a mother, and. Um, and um, I got to tell her how happy I was that she was a mother. And um, also I talked to my mother-in-law, who wishing her a happy Mother's Day and telling her how happy I was that she was a mother, <laughs> right? And what benefit it's been for me that she was a mother. <laughs> and, uh, and then also just thinking about my mother who died a long time. It seems like a long time, 10, 12 years ago, maybe more. No, it couldn't be that long, could it? Yeah? Yeah, Mindy knows. Yeah. Yeah, when we had the Sangha, but I don't think it was when we had the Sangha here. Yeah, it was in the old place. Yeah. And so, um, so I was appreciating and thinking and contemplating the whole idea of, well, what does it mean to be a mother? And I was thinking about it, it you know, it, I guess the obvious is that it means to give uh, birth or give life. And so then I was thinking about it a little more broadly than the usual way. I mean, there's clearly there's, it's Mother's Day, you know, women have children, they're mothers. And happy Mother's Day to all you mothers here. Um, in that way. But then I was also thinking about it a little more broadly in terms of what does it mean to give life and and um, in some way we all get to be mothers if we give life to things you know, we all give life in different ways we all give life to um, uh, others through our um, love or through our attention or through our help or through our teaching or uh, training people or or we give life um, through our creativity, that we mother life itself, that it's actually a natural and archetypal um, uh, reality to be a mother in a certain way. And so I was just appreciating the, um, the life that's been given to us also in terms of the Dharma, that, that was, the Dharma was birthed in a certain way. Maybe it's always been here, but it's birthed in various forms through various people, through their labors, right? That's how you give birth, through labor. And so part of practice, part of maybe mothering our own awakening is to be willing to go through 
the labors that it takes because it does take labor there's no there's no you know I know that there's certain in certain traditions they say you're already enlightened and that's true but if you don't know it really <laughs> it's it may be good to do something to learn learn it more deeply that part of practice is learning how to give birth to um, or to make real realization meaning to make real and that's part of what we we nourish as practitioners that's part of what we support or care for as a mother does and you know the Buddha um, used the images of mothers, fathers, family often in his teaching and the most one of the most famous maybe the most famous using a, a family member um, is that of mother um, and it's it's in it's in the metta sutta and the metta sutta is the sutta on, on love or um, metta can also be translated as friendliness um, loving kindness and the Buddha said he said you could um, he said um, to love yourself um, um, like a mother loves their only child that that's the quality of metta to love yourself and others like a mother loves their only child and you know how much mothers love children um, and it's true in the human realm and in the other realms the other in the animals I was watching at Spirit Rock um, today uh, the, the new deer the just born deer are out and there's these little bambies you know really they look just like the cartoon the bambi and the mothers are very protective of their young and uh, it's beautiful to see so I thought it'd be nice to just bring in Mother's Day mothers and our own um, capacity to mother our own capacity to give birth to what we value to what we cherish to what we love whether it's um, metta awakening wholeness uh, freedom liberation the sure hearts release whatever language works for you that I think that's a nice way to think about ourselves as mothers and then the last thing I want to do is just um, say a little bit about change because also thinking about mothers had me thinking about how things change um, you know like I said my mother's been dead for some 10 or some years I can't even remember um, and um, was appreciating her and the whole life that was lived you know the whole life that was lived and uh, how beautiful it was even and I don't mean to overdo it right I mean <laughs> my mother wasn't a perfect mother by any means but um, that doesn't matter so much right now you know the appreciation is definitely more in the foreground um, uh, and the poignancy of having had a mother 
um, or the poignancy of um, the deer this morning. You know, they're there and they're alive. They're so fragile, the little deer. They seem so, they can barely get their legs sometimes. You know, and they're running after their mothers, trying to nurse sometimes, and the mom does. The mom's had it for a while, you know, and they're kind of running away from them a little, but they don't want to run too far away. And so I just felt very, um, and partly it's from being on retreat where people are so open, you know, and I had, I must have seen 12 people in interviews today, all of whom very open, very tender, very. Um, vulnerable, um, some in very blissful states, some in very um, um, tender, painful states, uh, and the poignancy of human beings seeking to awaken, seeking to be real, seeking to discover what is this human experience in essence. It's very beautiful. And just the whole change of life, too. I mean, you know, that we don't. I could, I could get really maudlin now. I don't know why. I feel, I'm feeling it. You know, we don't know what'll happen in the next, you know, hour, and things change, and will the warriors win or not? And <laughs> we'll know soon. And <laughs> and, and I also wanted to just acknowledge. Um, somebody in our sangha who's uh, been part of our sangha for a long time, our volunteer, our, our Kalyanamita coordinator, Rebecca, who's leaving as she graduates from medical school and goes on to internship. Is that what you're doing now? Yeah. And, um, and I just wanted to acknowledge you partly because you're here with your family. And it's lovely to have your family here. I really appreciate you coming and being willing to sit through a meditation and Dharma talk and the whole. So, I mean, it's a beautiful thing that families do is appreciate the growth that goes who knows which way, right? Who knows where, where the children are going to go or the family goes. But it doesn't matter. There's the the love or the care, anyways. So I think I'll stop there for tonight. Let's sit for a minute. May the merit of our practice here this evening, may we offer it freely for the benefit of all. May the blessings and goodness of our time together be good for every being 
in every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. From the suffering of war, and the suffering of ignorance, and the suffering of division, the suffering of racism, the suffering of confusion, the suffering of greed, the suffering of hatred. May all beings be free from suffering in every form. May all beings appreciate this precious human birth, this precious opportunity to awaken and to all the all, the, all those who've mothered us in whatever way, shape, or form, may all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.